Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud. From the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter, I'm Carice Hendrick. A couple of weeks ago, I shared some news about a steep increase in account takeover attempts that e-commerce merchants had reported to me. At the time, we were really concerned that the reason for very vast uptick in account takeovers varying from 3.5 to 5 times as many account takeover attempts as previous now has been affecting about 10 to 20 retailers that I know of. I am sure there are more, all with similar MO as well as attack methods, et cetera. And this definitely looks like a coordinated attempt or attack. And at the time, and I still feel like this, but not as much, I suspected that this was because of a data breach of credentials. There were several reasons why I shared most of those reasons in the episode. There were a few that I held back. I also shared a couple of updates and information on LinkedIn over the last two weeks about that attack as I got more information. But we assumed, you know, the person who first reported this to me, as well as a couple other companies I talked to, based on all the information, we assumed that it could have been a sign of a recent data breach of credentials, of usernames and passwords. I'm still not ruling that out. However, it's been almost two weeks since I recorded that episode, and we still haven't seen evidence or an announcement of a data breach by a large online company. It's certainly not the one that I originally thought might have been the victim. That's why I don't share anything unless it is for sure confirmed, because I certainly don't want to call anyone out that isn't a victim of that, especially at that large scale. But it is still important to know that these account takeovers are really targeting companies. It does look like it's one large group and that there are no lists being sold on criminal underground forums that attributing one's pick retailer, which is often what we will see when there has been a data breach. But that's why this was so different. And that's why I've been talking about it, because a lot of times as soon as lists are being sold on Criminal Underground and they say, hey, this is a list from X company, then a lot of security reporters will get a hold of it and notice that and will report the data breach. But in this case, that hasn't happened. So it's possible these are old lists. The reason why I don't, I didn't think so, and I still don't, is because they are not targeting accounts that have been compromised before. But I will continue to provide more information. And I know I will talk a little bit more about that on Thursday's episode. But because account takeovers are just top of mind for so many people, and whether you are in e-commerce or fintech or banking, financial institutions, et cetera, if your company has account takeovers, I really think that this episode will be helpful to you. I really learned a lot. What I'm actually going to do is instead of having a, a fresh conversation, I'm going to be playing a recording of a virtual session that I moderated for Card Not Presence Virtual Summit Series earlier in October of this month. I was joined by Mike Lewis, who's the head of engineering and machine learning for Risk at Square. Primarily, the I know Square has several different companies now or entities, but Mike is primarily in charge of Square's payment processing and merchant processing piece, which is very large. So it's not to be understated, but he's not working directly on Cash App or Afterpay or anything like that. And then I was also joined by Sean Colpitz, who is the senior fraud investigator or a senior fraud investigator at Just Eat Takeaway. Both of them have different yet valuable knowledge and experience on account takeovers. And you'll get to hear more about their backgrounds and how they interact and you know, actively work to prevent account takeovers on a regular basis. Well, this conversation was one of the best I've been a part of or have even heard before. And because of that, I asked the CMP team 
and the speakers if we could share this on Fraudology. And thankfully, they all gave their blessing. Uh, we did run out of time. We only had like less than 45 minutes to really share information. And between the three of us, we really wanted to give a lot of good tactical information and practical information, knowing that this is an issue that so many companies are dealing with right now. And honestly, they had such good perspectives on why ATOs have been changing so much, what they used to look like compared to what they are, as well as the challenges in successfully identifying new and current attack methods and advancements and what they've seen working, what they've been able to do to detect and prevent so many account takeovers. They also talked a lot about the challenges, you know, just in talking with the leadership about this and bringing up the F word, which is usually friction or fraud. But that was a question asked at the end. And I included the questions by the audience because I thought that they were really good. And chances are when one person asks a question at a conference or in a session or even for a podcast episode, oftentimes that means that other people have that question too. So while I wasn't sure exactly if I was going to include the question and answer time, when I listened back to it, I thought there's some really good stuff in there, so we'll include it. And then Mike also introduced the term targeted friction, and he referenced a blog article by David Press at Airbnb that demonstrates how that can be applied. I will make sure that that link is also in the show notes, as well as a link to the LinkedIn profiles for both Mike and Sean. The plan is that they will be returning very soon, hopefully next week. But we haven't recorded it yet, so I don't want to commit to that. But if it's not next week, it will be the following week. They're both so busy. But I really just think that this is going to be something that will be very helpful. I certainly learned a lot and I enjoyed sharing a lot. And I feel like it was just different than a lot of other sessions about account takeovers that I've seen in her. And so I really hope that you guys enjoy this. They both agreed to come for a follow-up conversation. And Mike will also get to talk a little bit more about the valuable lessons he learned about account takeover behavior and detection during his time at Google prior to Square. There were a few things that they were going to add, and there's just so much more to talk about. So we will hopefully have that ready for you by next week. If not, it will be the week after. But I can't say enough about this panel, and that's why I asked to reshare it. With that, I'm going to let you listen in on that conversation. I think I do reference DJ Murphy a couple times when I'm talking in the panel. He is the editor-in-chief at cardnotpresent.com. I've worked with DJ and CNP in multiple ways over the last eight years. I'm now not as involved regularly with them in the content or anything else, but they still call on me for extra help on events and finding speakers and content and all that. And then at the end of the episode, a DJ comes back on and asks the questions. So just in case you're like, who is this DJ person and who is this extra human that's talking in the last 15 minutes of the recording? That is who it is. With that, I'm going to let you listen in on my really fascinating conversation with Sean Colpitz at Just Eat Takeaway and Mike Lewis at Square. I am really excited about this conversation. I've joked that there are so many webinars and uh, conversations about account takeover, but it's important to me and I know it's important to Mike and John as well to give you a little bit different perspective and talk about account takeovers in a new way. Because quite honestly, I think we've been talking about credential stuffing and those types of methods of account takeover for so long that sometimes we don't, we fail to realize that there are a lot of adaptations that the bad actors are able, are doing, whether it's through increased technology and capabilities there or just getting smarter and the rewards are so high. I forgot to introduce myself. I I think I just assume people know who I am, whether that's a bad or a good thing. I'm Curry Hendrick, and I am the founder and principal consultant of Chargelytics Consulting, primarily focusing on working with enterprise merchants in fraud, payments, and chargebacks, as well as working on building community. I'm a big proponent of education, which is why I've worked with CMP in different capacities over the last eight years, as well as information sharing and collaboration among enterprise merchants. And I'm also the host of the Fraudology podcast, where I nerd out twice a week, Tuesdays with 
amazing interviews with experts within our industry. And Thursdays, it's a solo podcast on, on hot topics. With that, I really want you guys to get to know our panelists. They're just really have so much better experience. I'm feel like I'm the one that doesn't know as much. Mike, I will let you kick off with introducing yourself. Hi there. I'm Mike Lewis. As Carice said, I'm currently the head of engineering and machine learning for Risk It Square, but I've been in the industry a very long time. Some of you may be familiar with Cybersource, which was one of the first e-commerce processing platforms in the late 90s, or the sort of the birth of e-commerce. And I worked there and really built their fraud screen. We had a very limited one when I joined and I developed something that would actually scale for what we needed. For what a software patent is worth, I'm the lead inventor on a patent for evaluating fraud risk of an e-commerce transaction. So there's something having been there at the beginning of the industry. Since then, I've worked on anti-phishing at SpamCop, four years of ads risk at Google, a year of device integrity at Uber, and then five years here at Square. And during my time here, I've obviously seen the impact that account takeovers have. It's one of our biggest concerns since regardless of why they happen, whether it is gaps on our side or data breaches at other companies, they damage our seller's trust in our platform. We've been very actively working on this. And because of my experience in the space, I've been working both for engineering machine learning, but also some of the analytics and approach that we use. Just for clarification, for context, for the next little bit, as we talk about account takeovers, you are primarily overseeing Square's payment processing for small to medium merchants, right? I know that Square also has Cash App and they have a new buy now, pay later product, but you're primarily looking at, it's almost like a marketplace or a hybrid of a marketplace and a payment processor looking at your smaller merchant risk. Is that correct? Generally correct. So I don't work with Cash App and I don't work with Capital, our microloan platform. We do run Afterpay's fraud mm -hmm. risk as well. So the binocular. Every time you talk, Mike, I'm like, dang, you know so much. I don't even know how you took out time to do this, but I am so grateful. And same with Sean Colpitz. You are busy fighting fraud and uh, working to educate the industry in various ways as well. Can you introduce yourself a little bit and a little bit about your background? Absolutely. Thanks, Carice. Hey, everybody. Sean. I'm Senior Fraud Investigator for the Global Fraud Operations Team at JustEatTakeaway.com. <sighs> That's a mouthful sometimes. <laughs> My background, I started off in accounting. It was very boring. So I moved on quickly into inventory and logistics analysis for a large agriculture manufacturer. Basically the same thing I do now, but instead of looking at fraud and the patterns and everything that's going on there, it was inventory and travel scope. Uh, from there, I moved, wanted to do something different, moved into physical security and loss prevention. That was a lot of fun until an altercation. My wife decided you should get back behind a desk. So I did. Lo and behold, I landed at Skip the Dishes, entry-level position. Within about a month, I was on the fraud team and I've been here ever since. Uh, our fraud team's grown from just being the Canadian market now through acquisitions being global. So we handle all of the Just Eat Takeaway platforms right now. That's incredible. And you do a lot of work and analysis specifically on account takeovers, right? Absolutely. It's one of my favorites to look into, actually. In my, in my opinion, when it comes to the customers, it is the most problematic for them. It, is, it generates a lot of fear. Unlike just a simple stolen credit card, they actually got access to something extremely personal, something that they thought was safe and locked down through thing, parameters and stuff that they felt that they put in. And their personal details are there. It's not just a matter of 16 digits in a CVB, anything like that. There's a lot of information upon an account that a fraudster could get their hands on. And it really scars a person. You have the risk of not only the chargebacks that, that you're facing, potential refunds or whatever the case may be that you may have to handle, but also the customer drop-off, unfortunately. They get afraid. There's been plenty of polls out there where customers say if they find out their account's been compromised, they're not going to use that platform any longer. You've got to do your best to try and protect them. That's such a good perspective and a good way to start the conversations. I was going to mention this 
later on. But as you said, you know, customers drop off, right? They lose trust in the company. And to them, they're not saying it was like account takeover. They're saying their account was hacked. And how many times have we heard that was driving me crazy for so long? And now I've just kind of accepted it. But because, you know, Mike probably more than anyone knows that hacking is a different activity, but we'll go with it because that's what it's become on that site in the customer world. How many times have we heard our friends and our family talking about it? Because it is violating. But one of the statistics, seeing a customer drop off, one of the largest marketplaces in the world did an internal study on the impact to revenue from account takeovers. And I don't think that that's discussed enough. A lot of companies feel like, well, it's reputational, it's a pain, it increases our customer service calls. That's the impact of the company. In addition to chargebacks, if the original payment method is used, depending on the, or having to repay for stored value, like depending on what the goal was. And what they found out was by looking at the annual spend of customers who experienced account takeover the year before the ETO occurred and then the year after, it averaged out. So there were some customers that they just kept buying on that marketplace. This marketplace is very popular. I, I like to shop on it frequently. And or there were customers who just stopped spending as much or just last altogether. And what they found was the impact of their account takeovers decreased revenue on all accounts that were impacted by 60% the next year on average. And that's insane. And I encourage every company to do a similar analysis because I think that can really demonstrate. I know that Peter Taylor led a panel on Tuesday for the CMP Summit on demonstrating the value of the fraud team to leadership and other areas of the business. And that is a very good talking point. But getting into kind of more of the nuts and bolts of this conversation, when both of you were starting to observe account takeovers, either at your current or your former company, what did a typical ATO account attack look like back then? Sean, I'll let you start. Yeah, at the beginning, it seemed a lot simpler. We're not entirely sure how they were first occurring. Probably some really low rate credential stuffing or something like that. But when we first observed observed it, there weren't very many. Not that we could find anyways. It didn't seem to be very prolific. However, month over month, those numbers doubled or more until, of course, it became problematic and we had to really attack the problem. You know, it was different for the different markets. For example, in North America, we saw a lot of use of stored credit card details. And in UK, it was a matter of credits upon the accounts being used. Both instances, it took a while to be able to source that, you know, we did actually have a problem that we had to take care of. And Mike, how about your experience? I would imagine that you've seen them throughout your career in different ways. And I feel like as DJ mentioned in the introduction, a lot of the account takeover behavior first started on the banking side, but it quickly went to e-commerce. When did you start seeing it and what were some of the attributes or the things that helped you identify it? It's always been around as long as the company that I worked with stored value for its customers. So when I joined Square five years ago, the only way that you got your money out of Square was that every night we would, a process would run that would transfer all of the money that all of our merchants had made into people's bank accounts. And so really all you could do was try to log into their site, log into their account and change the bank linked bank account to something that you controlled and then wait for the money to show up. And that usually gave us some amount of time to react. And it really capped the amount that they could get to approximately one day's worth of proceeds. Sometimes if they had full control, they would also try to, and if they also had access to stolen credit cards, they would use that merchant to run stolen credit cards because they assumed that Square would trust an existing merchant more than a newly created one. And so maybe they could get away with using the the new merchant for a little longer. but. A lot of this was really either most times single efforts where somebody has one login and tries to exploit it and see what they can get out of it before they get detected. Or when there's a major data breach and some huge file of passwords gets leaked, people would 
try to script against this at scale, but they didn't often have effective ways of using it when they found when they found working. I remember those days and Sean's point, they were a lot simpler. <laughs> but this we are not in this career path because we don't want a challenge, right? So it's a sophisticated game of cat and mouse. And so speaking of that, I guess I should back up a tiny bit. Like I receive a lot of questions from you know merchants often, whether it's topics for the podcast or just one-off questions. And I've definitely noticed in the last couple of years, people saying, wow, our account takeovers are just massively higher than they've ever been, but we don't know how to stop them. The things that we that worked to stop them before are not identifying, detecting or preventing them. And I have definitely done some presentations and I think a podcast episode or two on some of the things that I think are contributing factors to that. But In this case, I think what I would love to hear from both of you is how you've observed the behavior, the methodology, the technology, and or the motives change in the last one or two years. Sean, we'll have you share from your perspective on the changes and what you've seen overall. Things have changed exponentially since the pandemic. Everyone moving to online services and purchases, it's put that paradigm shift over to how are we going to make money from them now? And then with PSD2 coming into play, there's been that shift towards ATOs. It just seems easier to use stored credentials and whatnot from an account than it is to actually just use a regular card set of credentials. So you're seeing that shift towards ATOs. It's just become so much easier. Their software's phishing schemes like have just grown exponentially. It's amazing some of the techniques that they have keystroke savers so that even if you just happen to click one of their links and end up on one of their sites, start filling out their forms and it clicks with you when you're halfway through and you're like, oh, I shouldn't submit this. It's too late. They already have everything that you've entered up to that point saved and they're able to decipher what they can from it. So There's kishing, smishing, fishing. There's an ick for any sort of contact that they could possibly make. Come up with them in your own brain if you choose to. They use everything from calling you, texting you, emails, QR codes, something that I've reported on before is a growing problem, especially with the pandemic and everything being contactless. And those QR codes, they can't, they don't just link you to sites with forms and whatnot, the typical phishing schemes. They can actually add malicious software right to your device. Anything that has an online file path can then come back to your device. It's scary if you think about it. The FBI even put out warnings about it. Their scripts and bots have evolved. So now they have your credentials and they're going to use them. Now they have access to residential IP proxies. So they're running IPs that look legitimate to the naked eye. They have device rotations, they have so that it looks like every time they're using some different device gives it some form of unique identifier through your softwares. It's amazing. Basically, they have rate limits now. So it's not a matter of just cram anymore where speed is the key. Now it's avoiding detection is the key. So they have rate limits. So basically what you'll see is one IP used just a couple times and then it'll change to another IP. One device used just a couple of times, it'll change to another one. And they're entering everything a little bit slower to try and avoid detection. And with that revolution, it takes a while for them to go through their list of resources and come back to what they started with. So with that, they're able to avoid detection just a little bit longer. They've got the whole bot and human interactions now that they're doing to try and avoid detection. So your behavioral analytics that you're using to detect bot behavior will only react to part of the transaction. And then the balance of it, of this access is human. And they've grown so good at accessing accounts that they're now able to offer fraud as a service with triangulation fraud endeavors because they're that confident and they're that good. I was writing down so many notes because you made so many good points. And there were a couple of things I actually didn't realize. I also thought the quote that there's an ish for any way that a fraudster is going to contact a you know potential victim for account details was quite clever. Instead of an app for that, there's an ish for that. Fraud, hashtag fraud nerd humor, right? 
Um, but to your point, I don't want to steal any of the thunder from Mike because he's the smart one with the engineering experience. But I, the two things I would add to that is along with the keystroke savers, I've definitely seen in real time malware being sent back to the host that is capturing every single login of an infected device. And oftentimes that infected device comes from clicking a malicious link that can be on social media in an ad that can be in an email. It's they're not as obvious for consumers to, to identify as it used to be at all. And what I've seen is they're not only capturing the username and password, they're capturing the full session data. They're capturing the device and the browser language and the browser type and the IP and all of that. So they can emulate that. And there's an emulator called Lincoln Sphere. And this is top to be top of my knowledge in tech, but in, on the technical side, but there's an emulator called Lincoln Sphere that is very good. And the UI on that, it's so easy to just, all you have to do is plug and play, right? And you can build a script very easily to build it in it will then emulate that device to the merchant. Gratefully, you know, there are some technologies out there that are able to identify that. There are also companies who, and this is how I learned about it, kind of live in the middle of the infected devices and the host and they capture all that data and they provide it to their clients, whether they're banks or big merchants, so that they can at least know what accounts specifically for that company are compromised. And it's not just, oh, these are the lists that are out there from a hack from 12 years ago. No, they have the exact information for your account so that you can add extra detection the next time that account logs in. The other thing I was going to mention on what you said, uh, just expanding a tiny bit, is on the human side. You're absolutely right. While processing power and sophistication on bots are on the bad actor side are just light years ahead of where they were just even a few years ago. And I've heard credible stories about Eastern European crime syndicates hiring graduates out of MIT and Stanford to write these scripted attacks to look as legitimate as possible. I read an article and I will be having a few guests, insanely like qualified guests on Fraudology soon about, there was an article in Politico two weeks ago that said that since the pandemic and because of the pandemic in some ways, people who have been human trafficking or organizations that have been doing human trafficking in Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia are no longer using them for sex trafficking. It's now scams and being those human bot farms and making phone calls and texting people. And they are putting a price on the head of these people to different organizations based on their skill sets. It is a very disturbing read. I recommend that no one read it the first thing they wake up in the morning, like I did, because I was in the worst mood the rest of the day. But it's very graphic about how they treat the people that they capture. And unfortunately, with the migration in Ukraine, it's a risk there too. Obviously, things are getting worse. Mike, I'd love to hear from you how you're seeing behaviors change too. I know I'm sure that from your perspective as an engineer working in machine learning, you're also looking at those analytics to see how you can detect these. Yeah. So a lot of what I'm going to say is very similar to what Sean was talking about. In the time that I've been at Square, we've developed a bunch of new services that all make access to your funds more efficient and faster which is great for our users, but also great for the attackers. And as people have gotten comfortable with moving larger parts of their life and larger parts of their business online, so Square now has a debit card where you can pull your money out instantly. And so if you, or we just have a button that you can press to move the money immediately and maybe, and we take a fee for that, but it means that we have much less time to actually catch when things are going. And also because of that, now there are a lot of sellers that don't transfer their money out of every night because they're actually using that debit card as the way they finance their business. And they basically use Square as their bank account to some extent. So now if you break into one of these, maybe you get a week or a month's worth of profits instead of just that day. The other piece is as more information has been available about our customers in data breaches or just looking through social media or whatever. The sophistication of the attacks and their ability to look like the person that they're pretending to be has really skyrocketed. And what uh, Sean described as fraud as a service, 
as the attack isn't just one person with a login and they do it and they figure out what's going to happen. Now, a lot of attacks look like somebody comes in once from Russia, sees that the login works, and then a week later, somebody logs in from a what turns out to be a VPN very close to where the business is and looks like regular traffic. And it's much harder for us to use behavioral analysis to figure out whether this behavior is an outlier. And so our models need to look at more and more elaborate and difficult to fake information. But at some point, we're the information that we get is what our customer chooses to give us. Another, Actually, another big piece of the changes that happened in the last few years is that as Apple and Google have gone heavier onto protecting privacy, it really limits how much we can do to protect people because the identifiers that we would have used to be confident of who we're dealing with are just not there anymore. I know that Sean can back that up. We have had this conversation before. <laughs> we absolutely have. Yeah, it's extremely frustrating because the more that they force privacy, okay, I say force, but the more that they allow for privacy, throw <laughs> privacy, whatever the phrase may be that they want to use, the more it restricts our abilities. And it's extremely frustrating. Like they're gi giving everyone the ability to mask or not even share details constantly. If they're not going to do that, they should provide at least some form of unique identifying fingerprint other than just random gibberish and nonsense or not giving it at all. And anonymizing that payment method too, which is not necessarily related to account takeover, but that can also lead to a lot of issues from a fraud perspective. And that's not even, that's not close to the first time that as a consumer, I like something, but as a fraud fighter, I don't, or vice versa. Sometimes when I'm looking at new technology and I see how much data is available, especially in the US for con about consumers, I'm terrified as a consumer, but I'm excited as a fraud fighter. That's a really good point, Micah. I'm really glad that you brought that up. I mean, you guys have kind of talked about this already, but do you have anything to add as far as what the challenge is in identifying these newer behaviors prior to being successful or prior to the account takeover being successful? It used to be really easy. Velocity was key. My mantra back pre-pandemic and a little bit bleeding into it was new, 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 new. If it's new, there's a good chance to stay to you. New device, new IP, new geographic location. It was simple back then. And it feels like it was so long ago. I was going to um, say two, year, two and a half years ago. <laughs> but it does right? feel like a lifetime to us all. I've said that more than once, even just this week. So much has changed in the landscape. Now you can't just rely on new and simple velocity. Like I mentioned before, the scripts that are running now They've got that revolution. So it takes a while to get back to details that you can pinpoint as part of this pattern of behavior because the pattern takes some time to develop now when it comes to these logins. Hmm. You know, and their rate limits. You don't often see the giant spikes that you used to. They're still spiking, but not as greatly all the time. So it makes it harder to just see that it's even happening sometimes. When they limit how many times they use one IP for account takeovers on your system, or even overall, because they know that it's work with consortiums and depending on the fraud provider and how that works, et cetera. But that would also, yeah, it'd make it worse for sure. Mike, how about you? Has there been challenges? I know that we've talked about, especially like international third-party data, that that can be a challenge for sure in validating if the person or the, the micro merchant that you're working with, or not always micro, the merchant that you're working with uh, or that you're looking into has been taken over or they just got a new iPhone or they just, or they just moved or like that. Yeah, there's, as we've gone international and had to deal with GDPR and different sources of third-party data, and really just the, the societal expectations around privacy in different places. There's a lot of adjustment that we have to do in each place in order to be able to do something that isn't an unacceptable level of friction to the users and trying to adapt to that while still coming up with a general approach has been a real challenge. So 
moving from challenges to opportunities, I never like to talk about a problem without at least providing some solutions or suggestions. And you guys are really the experts on this topic. So what can online companies, whether they're in e-commerce or fintech or a marketplace or even a bank do to understand the types of account takeovers that their organization is experiencing and how can identifying the methods and technology being used lead to, I wrote this question weird, but what I meant. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Was how can identifying the methods and technologies being used by bad actors to commit account takeover lead to prevention tools and strategies? Sean, I'll let you kick this off again. I think that's a good cadence. Now I'm not putting Mike on the spot too much. <laughs> switching it up. <laughs> As for developing new technologies, I'm not the engineer. That would be Mike. But basically, in, in my opinion, when it comes to attacking the fraud from my angle, knowing what they're using helps you determine how you're going to decipher what's going on in your network so you can prevent it. Several brute force attacks aren't as big an issue anymore. Those are still pretty easy to do, to prevent in your standard methods. However, it's the credential stuffing that's leading to these issues. And what you'll often see, Mike started to point out there, you'll see that initial infiltration login. And then after that, either the credentials are sold or they decide to use them at a later date once they've condensed their list to just successful login credentials. You'll see that successive login, and then you'll see the activity. So really along the journey, there are three potential points where you can set up your defenses. But with credential stuffing attacks, even with the scripts running and everything like that, the patterns are still there. It is just a little bit more difficult to source them out. So do the observation, find the patterns. And that, that's really what I do anyways, pattern recognition, OCD up here. So that, that would be my advice is the patterns are still there. You just have to find them. Can you drill down a little bit more on those three different points? I knew them right away, but just in case you know, even the audience, like what are the other two? Because I would agree with you in speaking with other merchants who have really dove into the analytics in a large scale, they have found that same pattern where there's often an initial login to identify an initial login that is not the account holder to identify the or to determine if the account is accessible using those credentials and the tactic as well as looking around the account, right? Do they have stored credits? Do they have loyalty points or air miles? Do they, what, do they have a stored credit card on file? That, what have they purchased before? What's their history? Are they a big spender? All of those things, they're kind of shopping around. And then as you both have mentioned a little bit, this fraud as a service is something I've, I would think it was one of the first people to clean it because it, 
is changing the game so much in account takeovers as well as everything else, refund fraud, and which Sean and I have also talked a lot about and a lot of other pieces of the puzzle because you no longer have to do everything yourself. You can easily find someone to buy something on a stolen credit card for you or give you an account. And there's also been, you know, employee credentials accessed at shipping carriers that now allow refund fraudsters to PO those accounts and access them for a fee. They'll pay $900 for that login. They're They're told instantly to go change the password and then they have access to it for a while to be able to change the final delivery of physical goods that are shipped from delivered to lost in transit or returned to sender. Then they call up customer service and say, oh, it, that's what it says. So that's another kind of account takeover, right? There's so many different goals of them. But so there's that initial login. And then what are the other two pieces that you are looking for as opportunities to identify account takeover as they go through the process? Now, that initial login, that as you said, that seems to be the test, right? Do these credentials work? And when they have access, they either then condense their list to say, yes, these creds work, or they also scrape the data, say, yes, these creds work. And then those lists are either used by the same fraud, fraudulent organization, mm-hmm. or they're sold for higher value than they were originally purchased for, because they now have a list of creds that absolutely work on whatever platform that they're trying to access. And if they did scrape, then they also have the information that they could share and add to that list to then inflate its value. The successive login, that's the one that you're seeing where they're actually infiltrating the account for use, for whatever purpose they're going to use it for. Uh, The person who's accessing to that point has all the necessary information, to then complete whatever transaction or make it any changes that they're going to to that account. So that's your another point of contact. Typically, those are the ones that are accessing accounts with the more common devices and IPs, as Mike had mentioned, where they're, they're looking more genuine. You'll see that initial big spike on that infiltration login. But the second one is the one that tries to appear more genuine. That's a little bit harder to pick out. Again, you're still looking for new. You're still looking for that pattern. However, instead of seeing failures upon these rotational data points, you're going to see a bunch of success. However, often one of the patterns will be some of the account details, right? Not necessarily what the fraudster is using, but just the details themselves that will collaborate with some of the data points that the fraudster is using, such as IP, user, agent, whatever the case may be. And then from that, there's actually the use. And if you can set your fraud prevention tools up to also act upon fraudulent use, not just access when it comes to ATOs, force that challenge, then you've got another point in your back pocket that you can use towards your defense. So that's when you see someone who's in one location, say placing an order to someone who's a thousand miles away in a completely different market. And then you have that other indicator that you can use to flag suspicion, but not necessarily prevent, but challenge. Thank you so much. So Mike, I would love for you to finish up this conversation with, I know for I am almost positive you could talk about this for three hours as far as some of the things you have found in your work in engineering and ML at Square to identify these. But what are just a few of the tips that you can share that may help other businesses? From a machine learning standpoint, APOs, while horrible, are in some ways easier to write machine learning against because when somebody uses a stolen credit card, sometimes the chargeback never happens. Sometimes the cardholder never notices or the processor lets it go through or what have you. And Or it's a small dollar amount so they don't push a yeah. chargeback. Yeah, that's a good and point. so it's really hard to have a reliable data set where we pretty much find out about every ATO that happens. And so our ability to write models against that is a lot more effective, even though their ability to hide has improved as well. One thing to keep in mind when we talk about this is that because the cost of remediating an ATO is so high, it's very important to have some level of controls before people actually get in or before they actually get away with their money. Another big part of this is targeted friction and doing A-B testing to figure out what your customer base is willing to tolerate. Airbnb has a really good blog post on targeted friction that's worth looking up and how we use that to prevent chargebacks. Doing something that 
allows your valid customers to still get some benefit from your site while mitigating the risk of catastrophic loss is really powerful. For example, the way I present this is that imagine that you have a model that says that if your score is above 0.9 on this model, we're sure you've been ATO'd. This is challenging because on one hand, we do the same thing if you score a zero or 0.89. We do something very different if you score 0.89 or 0.91. And both of those can be bad experiences. So instead, what you can do is say, maybe if they score between 0.85 and 0.93, we'll only let them take $300 out of their account today. Maybe that's enough for them to function and not feel like they've been interfered with unnecessarily, especially if you have good communication, you explain what's going on and why you're doing this. But it also prevents the appeal of an ATO and if we can make it so that they go bother somebody else, that's kind of a win. Yeah, that's really the name of the game, right? We've said it many times through over the years, and it's this is why information sharing and education like this is so important, right? Because we often joke that it's not necessarily about outrunning the bear or the fraudster. It's about outrunning everyone else that's running outrunning the bear, which is other companies in e-commerce. And that's why it's so important to share information with each other on platforms like this, on my podcast and blog articles. Sean has been writing several articles recently for the Merchant Fraud Journal. I know that, Mike, I'm totally looking up that targeted friction article on Airbnb soon. I'm sure that nobody doubts that I could ask you guys, I want to ask you like 20 more questions and talk about this for so much longer. But yeah, there's more. They're always, yes, leaving wanting more, right? But we might just have to follow this up on a future podcast episode. I'm, I've got my wheels turning here. But Mr. DJ Murphy has joined us. So I think that means that we need to wrap up for today. But we covered a lot of ground. And I really appreciate everything you guys have shared today. Absolutely. And we do have a few minutes for questions, which is great. So we'll we'll look at that. I just wanted to thank both Mike and Sean again. And echo Cree's point about information sharing. It's what makes us do what we do here. And only the willingness of the people that have appeared this week to share information with us has allowed us to keep doing this. So I am very grateful to everybody who's come on and we really do appreciate it. So I appreciate that. For now, it looks like some uh, questions have come in. So we're, uh, we're happy everybody's been able to stick around. We have probably 15 minutes or so to, to go over some of these. And let's dive right in. There was one right at the beginning. And I know earlier you were talking about, Chris mentioned the harm from a revenue standpoint, the impact that they might have, as well as reputational. And someone asked, if anybody here has numbers, what percentage of, of customers drop their accounts after they're compromised? Do any of you have industry data or anything that you have seen that, uh, that might indicate how big of a problem that is. I'll let Sean and you guys share if you can share specifics. I know every company is different. What I would say though, is that every company is different depending on so many factors, right? Is your company in fintech? Is it a bank? Is it a marketplace? Is it on the buyer or seller side? Is it low dollar, high dollar, et cetera? So I really recommend that merchants and practitioners in every sector do their own research and dive in and look at that. That's something that you can put a senior analyst on, you know, identifying a sample set of accounts that were compromised in six months ago, a year ago, et cetera, and then measuring the spend before and after. That's what I recommend just because from my experience, a retailer is going to have a completely different set of numbers than a ticketing company. And it really depends on what you sell. Do you have competitors that sell the same items or in customer loyalty, et cetera? Yeah, like you mentioned yeah. during the discussion, Kareem, you're going to not only see drop off, but you're also going to see a change in order behavior, where it's ordering a lot less frequently, not just finishing being done with your company altogether. However, I can't speak to my company personally, but just looking at e-commerce landscape in general, merchants overall, there's about 28% of them, the stats say that they wouldn't return to using an e-commerce merchant if their account was in fact taken over. And that's absolutely a significant number. We don't know where a lot of this data comes from. Sometimes it's difficult getting good data as a lot of you aren't able to share your, the data that you have in a setting like this. So 
We do appreciate when we are able to hear things like that. Sean, that's interesting. We have another question that that says, as we've shut down ATO vectors, our frosters have moved from starting with bot attacks to accessing via a compromised email account. We'd love to know if others are noticing this and if there are any ideas on how to prevent ATO via compromised emails. I don't know if anybody want to start. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. If you want me to, just from a more general sense, I think that from a behavior perspective, and Sean and Mike can can chime in here too, oftentimes when the email's been compromised, you will see a request for password reset. They're not going to know the exact password to your account. So it might be a combination of behavior, right? So request for password reset and a device you've never seen or request for password reset and they're changing the address or things like that. Now, granted, if it's just the first time when they're looking at the account, as Sean mentioned, the three different steps, you may not see a change of address or email or phone number, but especially if you see forgotten email or forgotten password and then changing the email or something like that's going to be always looking at your data and looking at how account takeovers look on your side is very important. And oftentimes that involves working with your InfoSec team because fraud doesn't always own the logins. Sometimes I get calls from merchants. Oh my gosh, somebody in my company thought it was a great idea to stop checking passwords. That happened last week with a large merchant or anyone could put in anything for a day. Or I learned that my InfoSec Sec team doesn't keep a log, but a lot of t- of logins. Okay, that's important. But a lot of times they do have a log and they do have that information. The other piece I was going to say is consider working with a dark web intelligence company. There's one or two that I know of that I think are I think highly of. There's several. I would say. All data is not the same that you can get from those. So make sure that it's as specific to your company or as specific to email companies as possible. But you can have a range of everything from every email and password that's ever been compromised in the history of breaches all the way to specific. And those are more on the malware side. And I think I mentioned that earlier, but to your company, but finding out if there's that way. Sean or Mike, have you found any solutions or or tips of where to look that you can share on this? Because I I do know that email compromises are a big challenge for e-commerce and online companies because out of your, it's happening outside of your network. Yeah, for this one, it gives you one more point of observation. Before we were talking about those three distinct points, the infiltration, the successive login, and the use. This one gives you one additional observation point that you can use to your advantage, which is that request for password reset. So following up on that, because you have the data details when it comes, and even possibly geographic details of that password reset request, following that, the access to reset the password could or might not, could be or might not be the same details. So if they're not, that's another key factor that you can use towards determination of whether you should challenge or block or whatever your action may be. And from that, for the next login that you would see on that account, that would then be potentially considered your successive login after those two infiltration observations. And again, if those details are different than that, those two observed infiltration steps, then again, you have a very valid trigger that you could use to challenge or block the potential login. Mike, anything to add on this one? Yeah, generally what they've described, this is another place where you can use some of the targeted friction that I was describing before. So you've seen something that's somewhat suspicious, uh, a password change request. And given that, you can then view their next actions, whether they're directly tied to monetizing the breach, like actually trying to get money out in some way, or if they're just poking around, And looking at their behavior in the site, you can decide whether you need to put some caps on what they're able to do in the short term, which should both give you time to figure out whether this access is appropriate and hopefully give you time to contact the customer through other means to make sure what's going on. Presumably, they have not just an email address, but also a phone number. And if they come in and change the email address and then the phone and the password and the phone number all at one time, that's obviously pretty suspicious. If they don't, maybe you should call the phone number that's associated with the account and make sure. And you don't have to do that all the time, but you can do it when the behavior indicates that it's appropriate. 
That's a good point. Yeah. And for anyone that shops, don't frequently try to share company names, but this isn't a good, unless it's been in a headline or it's a good thing. I know that one of the most common e-retailers is Amazon, right? And if anyone has changed their credit card or if you are logging in from a new device or you're on vacation, chances are they're going to ask you for the last four digits of your card or to re-enter your card, or they're going to ask for things like that. Those are also some examples of targeted friction to Mike's point. And so that often can be easier to sell internally in your company as well, rather than just saying, if they do this, we got to shut them down. Hey, this is why this is suspicious. This is the amount of money that's being lost. Here's what we recommend. What this actually leads into perfectly into the next question, the idea of targeted friction and what you just mentioned. The next question, it says verbatim, one of the difficulties I've had, no matter where I've worked, is convincing leadership or growth teams that not all friction is bad. Uh, short of major losses, what uh, what has allowed you to push forward with prevention measures successfully? I promise uh, I actually didn't see that question. So as that came up and as you guys were working through that answer, I was like, this is actually perfect. So it, it is the notion that any friction is going to result in reduced sales is ingrained in in e-commerce thinking. And it has for it has been for a long time. So how do you overcome that? I have so many things I could say, but I want to make sure that I give Mike and Sean an opportunity first before I blab on. Related to what I was talking about before with targeted friction and the analogy of the model ranges, one of the things that I pointed out when I was trying to sell our product teams on this is that right now we have to terminate access to their account at point nice and then we have to go through the whole remediation process. And by applying targeted friction, it lets us move that threshold up some. So now maybe in the range like 0.9 to 0.93, they're still in the targeted friction range and they haven't gone through the huge headache of actually having to go through the whole account reclamation process. And so targeted friction applied widely replaces a smaller number of much worse events that almost certainly will cause customer churn. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. And that's one thing you really have to show is that what you're targeting with this friction that you're adding is going to have a positive effect towards the fraud or whatever that you are going after. You really have to put it in numbers, the amount of genuine customers, transactions, whatever the case may be, logins versus the amount of fraudulent ones that are actually going to be struck by this show that imbalance that it's going to hit the fraud, not really any genuine customers. You really have to highlight that and have a good difference between the two in order to push that forward. Like I have a saying that I repeat often, the less friction there are for customers, the more traction there is for fraud, which is absolutely true. But you do have to be careful where you apply that friction. One other piece of this, and this is a very common anti-pattern, is if your product team is not responsible for the fraud losses that they allow to happen, sometimes when we present some of this targeted friction, we have to present it in the framing of the risk team suggests that you do this. We will let you decide that you want to optimize for growing your customer base and are willing to take some losses to do that. But those losses are going to be on your books and we will look forward to seeing you when your priorities change. But <laughs> if you have a structure where the product team is incentivized to grow their customer base and not disincentivized to take fraud losses, these conversations are harder to untenable. <laughs> Soup Sponjan from Sardine recently had a really good post on that. Now he suggested that growth teams also be responsible for risk or that growth and risk work together. And I was like, I want to see how like realistic that is. I know that we have like less than 45 seconds, DJ, but I'm going to cram in a couple things really quickly. The first one is what's the impact if we don't do anything? Mike talked about what's the impact if we don't do this. Well, we're going to have to put a lot more friction and cancel things and lock people out of accounts. If it's risky, but what if we don't do anything? How many social media posts are that going to lead to that my account got hacked on X site or lost customer trust or those lost dropped off accounts and dollar amounts, as well as you're really working on all of that. I know that, you know, I have a couple of podcast episodes on similar topics about talking to other departments in 
internally about fraud. I'm really working hard on that. CNP has as well. There was a really great session on Tuesday about that moderated by Peter Taylor in combination, both together and separately. CNP and I are both trying to do our part because we do know that this is explaining things within leadership and within the company can be hard. But to Mike's point, when they either own the risk or they are more aware of what happens if we don't do anything, and they really see that and they go, oh, okay, that seems to really help. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.